Good morning, New Hope. It's good to see you. If you would like to take out that little outline that you came in with, it'll help you as I move along through our notes. Today is Palm Sunday. And this is the day that we remember the triumphal entry, as we've just seen on the video, of Jesus coming into Jerusalem on a donkey, on an unbroken donkey. Ever tried to ride an unbroken horse? I have. They can buck you off real easy. And it was one week before the absolute pivotal inflection point in history that the whole world revolves around his resurrection. This is happening one week before his resurrection. And it marked, the final Palm Sunday marks the final seven days of Jesus' earthly ministry. But this wasn't just what you saw up here, a cute little cartoon. It was actually fulfilling a prophecy. Did you hear that? A prophecy. You can find that prophecy, and you may even want to look it up here in Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. Zechariah 9, 9. And it says this. This is written, by the way, 500 years before this happened in the physical act of Jesus doing this. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, here it comes, your king is coming to you, righteous, that has right standing before God, and having salvation. Two things. He is humble, and he is mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Notice he didn't come in a white stallion. Notice he wasn't born in a palace. Jesus is humble. Today we're going to look at two questions about this pivotal inflection point in history, Easter and the resurrection. And I want to ask two questions. First of all, what does it mean? And secondly, why does this even matter to you and I today? What does it mean and its implications. Well, friends, the resurrection of Easter was not done in a little corner somewhere in secret. In fact, the man that provided, the very well-off man that provided the tomb, was a very well-known and wealthy and salubrious character named Joseph of Arimathea. He was one of the Sanhedrin. So he was very well-known. It's like a professor in our days. So it wasn't done in a corner. And this is a historical fact. You can dig into the history and you'll find solid evidence for this. And by the way, it wasn't done in a corner because the whole of the city of Jerusalem saw what was going on with the flogging and the dragging through the streets. Some of you next year will walk with me through the streets of Jerusalem where this actually happened. They are still there today. We think our houses are doing good if it lasts 100 years. We're talking some things there that are 2,000 plus years old. So the whole city knew about what had happened with the crucifixion and the whole of the Roman Empire eventually acknowledged what had happened because they became officially Christian. Now the facts are this. In the middle of a small city called Jerusalem, there is an empty tomb. How do you know you can go and check it out? It's not why you have to walk far. 500 meters you get to it. There's an empty tomb three days after Jesus' body was put in there and it had been constantly guarded by Roman soldiers. What else do we know? We know that Jesus had appeared to hundreds of people at numerous places for almost seven weeks following his resurrection. Seven weeks. This is where we get the 40 days from. 
And he, he even cooked breakfast, you know that? He cooked breakfast on the beach, he did a barbecue. And he ate with people. And you could touch him. He had a real physical body again with bones and blood and flesh. But something huge must have happened and forever turned those cowering, cowardly disciples, John exempt, into bold believers who proclaimed there was a Messiah in the middle of Jerusalem and they were willing to be tortured and died for it. And by the way, and this is the most incredible thing, thousands of super stubborn Jews. Let me tell you, I've got a lot of Jewish friends and they are stubborn with a capital S. But thousands of them came to Christ. You don't persuade Jews easily. What persuaded them is what they saw. What they saw persuaded them. And by the way, if I see a dead man risen and he's been dead for three days and he comes back, you got my attention. And even he says it's good with me. <laughs> so a lot of people saw him. Now what does this mean? It means three things off the bat. Number one, Jesus is who he claimed to be. I'm going to draw these two. Number two, he has the power that he claimed to have. And number three, he did what he promised to do. So first of all, number one, the resurrection means Jesus is who he claimed to be. He is who he claimed to be. Nobody else has done this. John 11, 25, he says this, I am, by the way, that's, the, the Jews knew that was a claim for God. That was his title, I am. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even though he dies. Now, Jesus made some absolutely outrageous claims. Things that would really, see, if somebody up today said this, you'd think, whoa, weirdo. He said things like this, I am God. That's why the Jews wanted to kill him. That was blasphemy. There was no question what he was saying. He said, and by the way, I'm perfect. Who of you accuses me of any one sin? I'm perfect. And then he said something even more outrageous. I am the only way to heaven. That's very narrow, don't you think? That's very exclusive. He said things like, I am the saviour of the world. Now, I know a lot of people that try to put Jesus in this category of good teacher. A good teacher. But friends, that's ridiculous. A good teacher, just a good teacher, would never claim to be God. Imagine you had a great physics teacher. He says, hey, I'm a good teacher, but by the way, I'm God. You go, whoa. That took you off the good teacher list, straight to the bomb, fail. You are not a good teacher claiming to be God. He did. Now, we have a choice. You and I have a binary choice, A or B. Either Jesus was who he said he was, or he was the biggest liar that ever lived. That's as stark as it comes. That's the facts. That's the logic of it. Because he made some very unique claims. But he didn't just say that any fool can just claim something. You could be loopy. You could be delusional. You could be just an egotist and say something like that. It's one thing to say something. It's another thing to prove it. So he validated those claims and demonstrated that he was God. How did he do that? Well, one day, Jesus was clearing the money changes out of the temple. But that's a whole other story. And because it turned the temple into an extortionate flea market, effectively. 
And they said to him, Hoi, why are you doing this? Why are you messing up our market? And he said, because I'm God. And you have turned my house of prayer into a den of thieves. And they took offense at that. They said, you are God? Prove it. He said, I will. I'll prove it to you. Because after three days, you're going to kill me. And after three days, I'm going to come back to life. Three days later. So Jesus claimed to be God. And his resurrection was about to back up what he claimed. John 14, 6 says, I am. There's that I am again. The way. Now this circle the word the. Doesn't say one of many. I am the truth. I am the life. See, all truth is God's truth. And all life ultimately finds its source in God. And then, this is the part that we need to take particular attention of. Holy Spirit, I am our eyes to this claim. No one, circle that, no one, no one can get to the Father, God the Father, except by means of me, or through me, another version says. That's a very strong claim. That means any other way is not the truth. If he's right. He didn't say, I'm one of the ways. I'm a good way. He says, I am the only way. See, there's this crazy thinking around, which is absolutely illogical, that says all roads get to heaven, and it is incorrect. That is like me saying, or you saying, well, I can dial any number and I'll get to Ian's cell phone. That's ridiculous. There's only one number in the whole world out of the billions that will get to me. One. That is exclusive, and that's okay, because it's the truth. It's okay, and it clutters out all the other lies. It gets rid of them. Now, even if you don't believe Jesus Christ is who he said he was, you still use him as a reference point every time you write a contract, every time you sign a contract, every time you put an appointment in your calendar on your smartphone, what's the reference point? 319 years from what? From the day Jesus came to earth, died and rose at Easter. So God came to earth in the form of a man so that we could know what God is like. The Bible says Jesus is the exact representation of God. So you want to know what God's like? Show me what God's like. You say, you take a look. I am the exact representation of God. But what he did is he wrapped himself in flesh because no man can see God and live inside. His name was Jesus Christ. And he split history into A.D., Actually, from your essay, A.D. and B.C., from that angle. And every time you write a date, a university or a work, even your company references Jesus, not Muhammad. Jesus is a reference for the world. He said who he said he claimed to be, and the resurrection means, number two, that Jesus shows he had the power he claimed to have. The resurrection shows that Jesus had the power that he claimed to have. That's number two. He said, all power on earth and in heaven is given to me. Because he was God, he could do everything that God could do. In John 10, 18, I love this. He's very sure this is, this is meekness. And meekness is never weakness. It is strength under control. Meekness is strength under control. Now look at this. 
He says here in John 10, 8, nobody takes my life from me. Not these Romans, not Pilate, not this swizzle with Barabbas. I have the power to lay it down and I have the power to take it up again. No force could keep Jesus in that tomb. See, the Romans killed him and they put him in the tomb. And then they put a big stone, and you're going to see some of those stones in front of the tomb, and then he sealed, it was sealed with a Roman seal to make sure nobody tattooed with it. And they posted a 24-hour guard, but they could not, they were powerless to prevent the inevitable. You see, he had all the power in the world, and he said, I, I can give my life, and I can take it up again. And that's where they get the phrase, you can't keep a good man down. The number three, the resurrection means Jesus does what he promises. Never forget that. The promises of God never fail. Not like you, us mums and dads. By the way, sidebar, if you're a mum and dad, be very careful about promising things to your kids and backing up your words with lots and lots and lots of qualifiers or extra weight. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Be careful of promising because if you promise, you need to deliver. To have integrity. Because you're going to want one day your kids to do what they say will do. And the best way to do that is be an example for them. Number three, the resurrection um, proves that Jesus does what he promises to do. Number three, and here it goes. Mark 10, 34. They will mock and flog me and kill me. So he's already telling them what the prophets have already said. He's, He's saying it again. But after three days, I will come back to life. I always like to, I guess, imagine what it would be like to be one of those guys who put Jesus to death. He just publicly executed this guy. Some of those guys won't be feeling too good because the Bible says they punched him in the face. They plucked out his beard. And then you have him buried. The stone's put there, seal there, 24 again, three days later, that guy is up and walking around. The city, the city where this has just hit for 40 days, not just a quick flash. For 40 days. What do you say when you meet him face to face? Well, the angel said this here. Don't be frightened. I know you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He's come back to life again, just as he said he would. Circle that, just as he said he would. He did what he promised. And Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. What he says and what he promises, he delivers on. Now, by the way, that's another issue. I think some people put a lot of words in Jesus' mouth. So be careful when you're reading through the scripture. We're going to do a course called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth to help you with the skill that is required to read the Bible in context. If that's something you'd like to know about, please write it on your communication card and we'll let you know when that course is coming up. So when God makes a promise, you can count on it. Because Jesus did rise, it means several things. One, he is who he said he was. Two, he has the power he said he had. And three, he kept the promises he made. So okay, I agree those three, but here's a big question. So what? And that's what I want to look at in the second question. Why does the resurrection even matter? What difference does it really make to me In April of 2019, what is its relevance to my life?
today. What is that? It's school. If Jesus is who he said he was, what does it mean to me? It means three things. Because Jesus who he claimed to be, he has the power he claimed to have, because Jesus does what he promised to do, here's the first implication. And this is a very important one. My past can be forgiven. Without this, it couldn't be. It's impossible for your sins to be forgiven. And that is good news. A lot of time people wish it could start over again. We've all wished we hadn't done certain things or said certain things or behaved a certain way or thought different ways. We all have regrets and we all feel bad about things. We have guilt. Every one of us has had guilt. Some time ago I came across this letter. It says, I am a 31-year-old divorcee. I fought the divorce bitterly. And I feel badly. I have no hope for my future. Often I go home and cry, but there's no one to hold me when I cry. And no one cares. Nothing changes, and I continue to fail. I'm stressed out emotionally, and I feel like I'm on the verge of collapse. Something is very wrong. She goes on. But I feel so hurt and embittered that I can scarcely even react or relate to others anymore. I feel as if I'm going to have to sit it out the rest of my life in the penalty box. The tragedy is there's a lot of people who feel like that. They can't get on with the present today because they are stuck in the past. They can't even think about the future because they keep revolving around that past. Maybe it's a guilt, some guilt, something that they've done to somebody else, or regret or resentment, something that somebody's done to them. Something's tied them back. Sometimes it can be a form of relationship. They're letting it mess up their current relationship. And they're running around with this emotional baggage trying to live life, and they're wondering why there's this gnawing, low-grade, almost depression and lack of motivation. Now, Colossians 2.14 says this, and this is good news. He, Jesus, has forgiven all our sins. That's everything back there. And cancelled every record of debt that we owed. Christ has done away with it all. Nailing it to the cross. So it's like all that certificate of debt, they're like a, a title deed. All those things have been recorded. All those things, because God doesn't miss a thing, his knowledge is perfect. But the Bible says there in Colossians 2.14 that all the certificate, mine was probably like a, a telephone. Remember those old things called telephone books? Mine was fairly thick. And that was nailed to the cross behind Jesus and his blood covers that. So the, that's been taken care of. There's one problem with that sometimes. I sometimes think Satan took photocopies. And he keeps, keeps wanting to remind me of my past sins. You say, forget that. The real ones are there. Jesus paid for my guilt. And because he paid for the guilt, it means that I don't have to pay for my guilt. Jesus Christ was nailed to the cross so I didn't have to nail, keep nailing myself. So he wants to forgive your past. And he says he wants to cancel every record, that verse says, of your sin and guilt debt that you owed. I love that, you know. 
cancelled. Big red letters. Paid in full. I like to think of it this way. After I finish paying my power bill, I don't think any more about my power bill. It's gone. After you finish paying your debt, it's gone. Once it's paid, I forget it, and that's the point. Once God's forgiven it, I can forget it. And that, friends, is practical application of the resurrection today. One of the huge benefits of becoming a Christian is to have a clear conscience, just knowing that I am free from all of those things that I've done wrong. If I confess my sin, the Bible says, He, Jesus Christ, is faithful to forgive me and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. Yes! And that's good news. So because Jesus is who he said he was, my past can be forgiven. The Bible says there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And that means that you can walk out of here today free, knowing that every single thing you've ever done wrong, up to this point and in the future, can be forgiven. Now that's good news. And by the way, that news I can use. A lot of the news you hear today is just junk and wasting your time. That news you can use. Number two, my present problems can be managed because of the resurrection. Now, one thing I used to think when I was a a young whippersnapper is that I could control everything. (laughs) The older you get, the more you realize there's a whole bunch of stuff you cannot control. A whole bunch of it. Some of you are smiling at me because you know that's true especially if you're a parent. <laughs> I was reading about Charlie Shedd, who's an author, and he tells a story. He says this, Before we had kids, I used to travel across the country teaching a lecture. I entitled my lecture, Ten Ways to Raise Perfect Kids. That was before I had any kids. <laughs> After he and Martha had their first child, he changed the title to Ten Hints for Parents. After their second child, he he relabeled the lecture, a few tentative suggestions for fellow strugglers. (laughs) On the arrival of his third child, he gave up speaking on the topic altogether. (laughs) I found it's pretty easy to have perfect kids if you got one of them. He had two or three or four, and the chance of challenges increases exponentially. Maturity, though, friends, is when you figure out you haven't got it all figured out. In fact, I have three earned degrees. My terminal one's a doctorate. But the, what, this is one rule I've learned. The more I know, the more I know I don't know much. <laughs> There's a whole lot I don't know. And uh, now I'm more aware. Now I'm aware of my ignorance. Before I was blissfully unaware of my ignorance. <laughs> so, maturity is also when you realize that you need wisdom beyond yourself to handle all that life is going to send you away. I can't know living in my life, but God knows how to because he knows everything. So I want to ask him for help. Some people say, I often feel powerless to change my situation. I hear that. Almost an expression of hopelessness. My life is out of control. I'm really having a tough time breaking this bad habit. I need some help to save a relationship or to get out of debt. Or to manage my time and my schedule. Friends, what you need, if you've ever thought that or know somebody that does, you need a greater power than just yourself. You need Jesus. See, because you were never meant to live 
this life just on your own power. God wants to have a relationship with you and help you. The Bible says this in Ephesians 1.19. It says this, look at this great verse. How incredibly great is his power to help those who believe him. The same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead. Whoa, I could do with some of that. Maybe you're thinking that. The same power that enabled Jesus to rise from the dead will help you rise above your problems and your insecurities. Now, God used the resurrection 2,000 years ago. How he used it can be the same type of power that God can use in your life right now. Now, you don't know what your future holds. I don't know what my future holds. It doesn't matter. It does not matter. Because even though it's out of my control, it's not out of God's control. And with that, I can be secure and safe knowing that he will give me the power to face whatever comes my way because his grace is sufficient for me. Philippians 4.13 says this, and this is Paul speaking, he says, I read for anything. Why, on my own strength? No, through the strength of Christ who lives in me. Notice it's not his grit, wisdom, engineering, or sheer brilliance because the man was absolutely brilliant but it's through the strength of Christ who lives in me. So no matter how hopeless your situation is, some of you here today just made it and you've had a tough week. God wants to say to you, do not give up. Don't give up. Because no problem is too big for God. None. No situation is hopeless if you'll turn it over to him. You need to do your part, but God will work through you. As you're working through the problem, he's working in and through you. So why does the resurrection matter? Number one, because my past can be forgiven. Number two, because my present can be managed. And number three, my future can be secure. Past, present, and future. Now, one of the universal issues and problems every one of us in room has absolutely got is this. We're all going to die. That's a problem. Everybody dies. I'm going to die, and so are you. Now, I have a question for you. If you know this is going to be inevitable, why would somebody go all the way through life and not prepare for what they absolutely know is inevitable? It will be a little short-sighted, myopic. Sometimes we get so busy doing all this other stuff in the here and now, we don't stop to think about what's coming. Now, the Bible says a wise man or wise woman thinks about what's coming and plans ahead for it. Now, people don't like to talk about death, but it's inevitable. So today, in the last part of this message, let's talk about death. I mean, if you want to have a great neighborhood party, just invite your neighbors and tell them, hey, let's come over and talk about death. See how that works. (laughs) Some children wrote some thoughts about what they believed about death. I love this. Gilda, age seven, says, when you die, they put you in the box and bury you in the ground because you don't look too good. (laughs) You'll love this one, Tom. Stephanie, at age nine, said, doctors help you so you won't die until you pay their bill. (laughs) Marsha, 
age nine also said, when you die, you don't have to do your homework in heaven unless your teacher's there as well. <laughs> and last one, Mr. Raymond, he's age 10. A good doctor can help you so you won't die. A bad doctor sends you to heaven. <laughs> Everyone has a deep curiosity to know what's going to happen the moment to step off this earth, the moment my heart stops. Now, some people claim to have come back. There's a whole bunch of research around that. Now's not like the time to get back into that. But many of them, and I will tell you this, some of them I'm very dubious of, but a handful of them I think have some credibility. One of the ones I would just quickly point out, taking a quick sidebar, is a woman who was um, having an operation, died on the table, was dead, if I, if I recall correctly, I'll have to dig up. If, if you want the article, write me on the communication card. She was dead for some time. I mean, this is not minutes. This is like 40, 50, up to an hour or more. What she claims, uh, anyway, she came back. They got her back. For some reason, she was resuscitated. And this is well documented at a very reputable hospital in the USA. It's part of some research on this. Anyway, this is the part that got me. When she came back, of course, she tells them what they were talking about while she was supposedly dead. That's okay. That's one thing. That's eh, maybe, maybe not. Not convinced. But what she did say, she knew them all by name because she'd heard their names, all of those. That still didn't convince me. This is what got me interested. She said, when my body left, I went up, up through the roof and up. And by the way, on the third building over there, there's a ledge. And on there, there's a red left-footed shoe. I saw that. Now, some clever clogs decided to go check that out. And it's documented in a good well, uh, in this research paper that indeed that's one of the things that shook some of those doctors to their core, because in she came with this red little shoe, and exactly the place she'd said that. Interesting. The point is, everybody has a deep curiosity to know what goes on after. It doesn't matter whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian. This is what the Bible says: you have been made to live forever. That's what the Bible says. The question is, where? In the presence of God or outside the presence of God? Now, obviously, one thing we can say is we will spend more time on that side of eternity than the 70 or 80 years that we get here. This is just the first millimeter of the journey. Then it's on to the main deal in eternity. When you go to the Bible, what does the God say about heaven with him and hell is separation from God. Well, this is what the Bible actually says. Heaven is a perfect place. That's what it says. It's love and total peace and joy, total perfection. Nothing's broken there. Yes. No bodies. That's broken. No sin, no corruption, no mistakes, no evil. Yay! Two. For you or I to go there we would have to be perfect because only people that are perfect could go to heaven. The trouble is if God let imperfect people into heaven, heaven would no longer be perfect. That would leave all of us out and we'd never make it if we had to be perfect. None of us are perfect and we've all sinned. So some people think there are two ways to heaven. Plan A, they think, which is false. 
Well, it's a performance plan. To earn heaven, you just have to be perfect and never sin. But since none of us qualify for that, God provided plan B. And plan B is you trust Jesus Christ and him alone. You establish your relationship with him because he said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. He was the only perfect person who ever lived because he was God. And by trusting and establishing a relationship with him, you were covered by his payment for your sin. See, the Bible says here in 2 Corinthians 5, for our sake, this is on the screen, for our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin. Who knew no sin? So that in him, Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. That's the transaction. That's the exchange. He took our sin and we gained his righteousness. It's like taking off that robe of sin and we get his robe of righteousness. Now, the only way I can get into heaven is trusting that the penalty that Jesus Christ paid on the cross for my sin covers my debt in full. So when you get to heaven, you'll recognize, God, there was no way I could get here on my own effort. In fact, John 17, 3 says this, this is the way to have eternal life. This is John. By knowing the true, only true God and Jesus Christ, the one he sent to earth. Now the Bible says that Jesus already paid for your way to heaven. All you now need to do is accept it. Accept it. And that is news you can use. So a Christian is not somebody who tries to turn over a new leaf. It's somebody that has a new relationship with God and gets a new life. Christ said it this way. This is the way to eternal life. He says in 1 Peter 1, 3, We have been born again into a life full of hope. It is honestly true that your best days are ahead of you. Circle hope there. Through Christ rising from the dead. That's what it is. Hope means you don't fear death anymore. None. There's no fear in that death. How can you not be afraid to die? By making peace with God now. Let me ask you a very open-handed question. Would you like to have every sin that you've ever had and done completely forgiven? Would you like to be blessed with a clean and clear conscience? Would you like to have your Savior help you navigate through the challenging problems in your present? And have your future rewards secured? That is the difference the resurrection can make. But just understanding why he's to heaven, why Christ rose from the dead, and what a difference it made is not enough. You need to accept that gift. See, I can have a beautiful present for you here, and it could be worth millions of dollars. But if you don't take it, it's not yours. Jesus is saying, here's my offer to you of eternal life. Will you accept it? And if you do, you need to go and you need to take it. You've got to accept it and act upon it. You pray and say. You pray and say. This is the confession of your mouth. I'm scrapping plan A because I'll never get to heaven on my own efforts. I've already blown in enough to the times to know honestly that I am not perfect. So I'm asking you, God, to work plan B in my life. Jesus Christ, I want to trust you that your payment was sufficient for my sin 
and I want to follow you and obey your commands. Because you know better than me. I'm like a flea. Your brain is way better. You've got all the knowledge. You get to know and you run with God's purposes for your life. That's how Easter makes a difference. Now, all of us come here today for a different reason. Some of you came out of habit. Some of you came because a friend invited you. It doesn't matter why you came here. I do not believe you came here by accident. I think God brought you here to get you to sit still for a few moments. So he could say to you, you matter to me. I know you, I made you, I know every little detail about your life. I sent my son to die for you, I love you that much. And I want you to get to know me. And that's what Easter's all about. So why don't you come to God with an open heart and say something like this. Say, God, here I am. Some of you have been close to God in the past and you kind of drifted away. You've been succumbing to the popularity gospel. Well, if my friends do this, then I'll do this. If they don't, I won't. This decision, my friend, is nothing about your friends. It's about you. Some of you have moved here to East Auckland and you haven't found a church home yet. If you haven't found one, we'd love to be your home, your spiritual family. What does God say to somebody who's been drifting? He says this in Isaiah 54 verse 7, With a deep love, I will welcome you back. Let me finish with a short thought. Nobody will love you more than Jesus Christ. And you matter to God so much that he brought you here today to tell you that, that Jesus died for you to prove how much he loves for you. Let's pray. Would you bow your heads? Friends, with all the different levels of spiritual maturity and a spiritual journey, some of you here today are not even sure that you're going to heaven when you die. Can I humbly suggest you need to make sure? Would you consider joining me in praying something like this in your heart? You don't have to say the exact words, just follow along with me. Words like, Jesus Christ, I know I'm not going to get to heaven based on my own good works. So therefore I'm putting my trust in you and asking you to save me today. I want to follow you. Thank you for loving me and dying for me. Would you help me to understand that more? Others of you in this room today, still with your heads bowed and eyes closed, maybe you've drifted away from Christ. And again, God wants to say to you with a deep love, I will draw you back. Would you say, Jesus Christ, I'm coming home today. I'm going to get moving and quit having playing around and I want to put you first in my life. Some of you have not found a church home and you hope again would love to be your spiritual family. We welcome you here. This is a place for imperfect people. The purpose of our church is twofold, to teach people how to live from the Bible and to prepare people for when they die. Those are two things you're going to need and we'd love to have you here. Some of you are barely hanging on and you've been discouraged and depressed. 
And the pressure has been building up this past week and month and you feel somewhat overwhelmed. And I think that God brought you here today so he could say to you, would you give it all to me? Let me work in your life. Let it go. I am God and you are not, he would say to you. Would you say, those people, Jesus Christ, I want to give you those problems that I'm facing. I want to give you my life, the good things and the tough things. Would you in turn fill me with your hope and your presence and your power and keep me firmly in your purposes? I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.